Welcome to Creators Revival, where we talk all things branding and design. I am your host, Kendall Mason, and on this episode, Meryl brings brands to life with big ideas, unflinching creative, and people who give a damn, who does it with surprise and delight, wit and design, crafting experiences that lead to meaningful relationships between brands and their communities. With two golden Addies, one silver Addy, the best design award, and the first ever audience choice award, please help me in bringing a warm welcome to creative director and founder at Marrow, Adam Brown. How are you doing, Adam? I'm doing really well, Kendall. Thanks for having me on the show. Excellent. Thanks for being a wonderful guest. So, what are the origins of Marrow? The origins of Marrow. Oh man, do you want like the business origins or the cultural origins? So the cultural origins. Okay, so you want to know the why uh, behind Marrow. Um, one of the things that I noticed uh, when I was an art director uh, at another uh, graphic design agency is that when, when clients were coming in and requesting some kind of branding, which is a really nebulous term, right? No one really has a good fix on what that is, especially from the client perspective. For a lot of folks, branding is it's, it's a logo and maybe some marketing brochures. It's not, it doesn't really expand out to include, you know, culture. Uh, it's, it's almost relegated exclusively to aesthetics. Um, and that was a big problem. And so the idea behind Marrow, uh, at least the name, um, Marrow has sort of a, a twofold uh, definition. On, on the one hand, we've got bone marrow, which is the, uh, the site of red blood cell production. Right. And so in sort of like a, uh, a metaphorical context, right? Marrow is, is uh, the agency is responsible for creating the, the brand, the blood that flows through the body of a company. It's, it's a cultural uh, uh, movement more so than just a, you know, an aesthetic movement. It's more than just a logo, if you will. Um, and then from like a, uh, a business perspective, uh, we, we set up Marrow in 2018. It took about nine months to get the entire concept put together. And what's remarkable about that is that we didn't actually get it all the way together within that nine months. One of the things about looking backwards uh, is, is, you know, hindsight's 2020, the cliche is apt, right? Um, we thought we had it. I thought I had it, right? Um, and, and we didn't have all the pieces aligned. And so over the last year, year and a half, um, we've been constantly, uh, you know, refining what it is that Marrow does and why it does it, who, uh, who Marrow actually works for. Um, and so that messaging has constantly been tweaked and, and has evolved. And I think that's a good thing, right? Absolutely. Brands are supposed to evolve. Um, they're not supposed to be static. Um, when they do become static, that's when you start to, to see the cracks. They need to move. They need to be flexible. As soon as they get, get still and static, that's when they're brittle. That's when they crack. That's when they break. They have to be responsive to the times. Agreed. Um, so as I've grown, Marrow's grown, and uh, odds are good that you know the, the people who are listening to this five years in the future are, are listening to a, a deprecated version of what Marrow probably is and, you know, what, 2025. Yeah, it's a great point. Things change so fast, as we can see. Oh my gosh! <laughs> uh, so, um, so the business side, yeah, of Marrow. How did 
that come about, or what was the idea to go in the direction um, that you're you're currently going in? Yeah. You know, well, you, you may have noticed I've I've used we a lot, right? So Mero, when it was initially founded, uh, had three partners, and I was one of the three. Um, and it was a, a, a three-way partnership. And one of the things that's really interesting uh, about about partnerships is that they're a lot like marriages, right? Now, personal note: um, I dated a woman for eight years before I got married to her. Um, and, and the guys that I, uh, built Marrow with initially, while I, you know, sort of known about them, our, our engagement, if you will, was that, that eight to nine months where we were building Marrow and learning about each other, um, in that process. So we came together as, as, as three people and we found over the course of, you know, uh, the first year of working in Marrow that we had different ideas for for the direction that Marrow could could go in, um, and and ultimately, I mean, we 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 reconciled that you know let's let's each focus on the things that we wanted to accomplish in business and in life separately, come together when it made sense, but not necessarily have to have Marrow be a a three way partnership. Um, so we initially started out with the idea, like I mentioned, this is going to be a uh, a branding agency, um, and and you know we talk about evolution, right? right? Um, I no longer use the term branding because again it means so many different things to so many different people, but no one asks what it is because they all think they know what branding is. Um, the words I use now are brand design, similar connotation, but it gives people a moment to pause and say, okay, well what is brand design. What does that actually look like? What does that actually mean? Um, and hopefully it, it starts a conversation about Mero's approach to branding. I'm doing all kinds of air quotes that only you can see. <laughs> yeah, the, there is a nebulous, it's kind of vague feeling when it comes to the term brand. Too many people think brand is a logo. Like your logo is not your brand. No, it's, uh, is it, uh, oh gosh, um, uh, Termayev, Geismer, and Haviv. Uh, what is it? Is it Sergey Haviv? I cannot think of his first name. He makes the statement, right, that um, uh, your logo is the period at the end of a sentence. It's not intended to be the entire story. And that's really helpful for, for clients to get their heads wrapped around because that means for them, they don't have to fall in love with a logo and have it mean absolutely everything from the word go. You know, the logo ultimately becomes a vessel, a symbol for whatever meaning that you build into it. Now, that meaning, right, meaning management is really, really interesting in, in the context of, of brand design because we might encode some kind of meaning into a logo. We may know what its propositional density is, right? Uh, uh, you know, what all meaning we've, we've built into the shapes and curves and colors. But someone who happens to see that logo on a sign on the street, they're not gonna decode everything that the designer and the client put into it. And that's okay. Because, you know, in reality, a brand is sort of a, a sum of impressions. You know, the idea of the brand, the brand lives not within the company or the owner, the founder, the CEO, the, the team. It lives in the consumer's head. And, and that's not plural consumers, right? There is no uh, uh, broad idea that exists in everyone's head exactly the same way. It's right. very individual. Very personal. It's very personal, absolutely. 
Um, and getting people comfortable with the idea that they don't have to control their brand so tightly. Like they can inform the public. They can tell people what they, uh, they want to think about the brand. They can demonstrate brand attributes through their actions, which is always a, a better way to go. But ultimately, a brand lives in a single person's head, and it's going to be different from person to person to person. Great example of this, um, the Dream Crazy ad that Nike put out back at, was it at the end of 2018? Do you recall this ad? This is the Colin Kaepernick ad. Oh, yeah. Right? I love this ad. I talk about it everywhere. Um, the thing that's really interesting about that is Nike put out one singular message. And half the country started burning their shoes and half the country went out and bought more shoes, right? That brand, that. it's incredible though. And, and now if you want to go one step further, right? Let's not just look at that one ad. I might say Nike and for a human rights activist, they may hear, oh, okay, yeah, sweatshops for children, right? Because that's a message that exists in that person's mind. Whereas someone else might hear high performance athleticism, right? And somebody else may, may hear, great, fucking colorways on these shoes, right? Like they've got great kicks. Everyone has a different idea of what Nike is. Um, so in that regard, Nike doesn't own its brand. Nike influences it, but the brand is really owned by the, the people who have mental models for what it means in their own heads. Yeah, that's, that's true. And because we're personalizing it, we'll associate certain meaning to it based on our impressions that we gain over time. Yeah, context like, matters. Context or nostalgia, like yeah. either a certain smell in the house might remind you of, um, of being around your, your grandparents or child. Yes. So, I mean, sensory awareness in branding is really, really crazy. Um, I think it's Martin Lindstrom who uh, wrote the book Brand Sense. I think that's right. He, um, he talks about, like, can you... If we shattered your brand, if we broke it apart into individual pieces, we would, would someone be able to look at a small piece of it and reconstruct what it was? And so, like, you know, examples are, you know, olfactory uh, senses, your nose, right? Being able to smell something, the smell of a brand is really potent. Um, and it's, it's really emotional. You're talking about your grandmother. But, I mean, even just to go back to the Nike example, like, the smell of a new pair of sneakers is, like, that's intense. That's really great. And people talk, a better example maybe is like opening a book. Yeah. Barnes and Noble, um, I have to this day really intense memories of being in high school and sitting at the Starbucks cafe in a Barnes and Noble studying with my friends for AP exams uh, and just the smell of the books mixed with the coffee. Like that is, that's a brand. That is a part of the brand. It's incredibly nostalgic for me. And so whenever I, I go home uh, uh, to, to Bowling Green, Kentucky, and I, I walk into that particular Barnes & Noble, like I smell it and it all just starts coming back. And that's that context for me, which is insane. And it's, it's predicated on an experience, a series of experiences I had back in the early 2000s. And that's where that brand lives inside my head. Marty Neumeier, in his book, uh, The Brand Gap, he defines a brand as it's not what you say it is. Mm -hmm. It's what other people say it is. Yeah, Marty Neumeier's fucking brilliant. I really do like him a lot. And his books, um, have, you ever, have you ever recommended these books to your audience before? Not yet. Holy crap. Well, let me take care of that for you. Uh, 
go out and read these books. They're so easy to read. Like, and he, he, he builds his books. There are three books in particular that, that folks should read. There's The Brand Gap, which you just referenced, uh, Zag, and uh, then The Brand Flip. And the three kind of work together. They're very similarly uh, styled and written, and they kind of build on concepts that he establishes in one book into the next. Um, but what's so great about these books is that they're so easy to get through. Like he's writing them with the intention that you can read them on a flight and, and glean something from them. They're great. They're so good. But you're right. Um, say it again. The brand is not what? The brand is not what you say it is. It's what other people say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so this is, this is a good point because, you know, a client walks into Marrow and they're like, hi, we would like you to work on our brand. We want to, you know, we've been in business for, for years now, but we don't, we don't have a brand and we want you to work on that. And I have to tell them, like, dude, you already have a brand, right? You may not have been designing a brand for the last several years, but you sure as shit have been building one, whether you wanted to or not, just existing in the world and being observed and interacting and making changes and influencing the culture, even if it's small, right? Even if it's just a, a one-block space on Main Street, right? You have a brand established in people's minds. It's already there, which is why we do research, right? That's why we go back and ask the people who are familiar with the brand already, what do, what do they have to say about it? And sometimes even that's, that may just be internally, right? Maybe the, the company that the, 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 the brand you know, belongs to doesn't have a, a huge customer base yet. Maybe it's a very new company. We can talk to the founders and start to build these ideas from the very, very beginning. And that's what's most important about what Marrow does, right? Um, we, we don't start with logos and, and websites and examples. Like, I'm not going to take someone through a logo book and say, hey, what do you like? What, what looks good? What do, you, what do you think the company looks like? That's irrelevant. Yeah, yeah no, you're right. That's exactly it. And it's, and it's almost irrelevant at that point for two reasons. One, um, if we can figure out how the brand is being perceived externally, right? There's this, this old, another cliche. I'm full of these things. You can't read the label from inside the jar. Right. That's a great one. And so, you know, you have you have founders and, and things like that that come in and, and they say, you know, uh, this is what the brand is. Well, OK, that's good. Let's let's check that with other people that, you know, are buying from you, the external perspective. And if we can kind of find a way to to marry those two perspectives together and then start building from ideas rather than examples of pictures, we're going to have a much stronger brand identity because, again, right, that brand identity, one, is not just a logo, and two, it's not what you say it is. It's what they say it is. Right, and you have leverage as, as, a, as an agency to help influence the idea, but ultimately you don't have control over it. That's exactly it. And that is, and again, it's so hard to let go of that sense of control. Um, but when you do, you start to open up uh, a really interesting opportunity because you're no longer having to, to structure or plan every single message with, with uh, uh, measurable detail, right? It opens you up to take some risks with your, with your, your brand messaging. Uh, with the way that you interact with people. Um, it gives you the opportunity. One of my great example of this, one of my favorite things to do is to ask stupid questions, right? So if, if, um, if a client comes in and they say, you know, this is, this is how we do things, um, 
a, a great question to, to respond with is, is just why. Why couldn't we do it like, like this? Right? And, and the answers are almost always kind of self-evident. But giving yourself permission to ask dumb questions, questions to which you think everyone already knows the answer, is really, really liberating. And that's when you start to um, uh, mine some unconventional approaches and tactics that can be really beneficial. Rory Sutherland, um, uh, who I also love, put him in the, in the same vein as Marty Neumeier in terms of recommendations. He's written a great book called Alchemy. Um, he's the vice chairman over at Ogilvy. Okay. Um, uh, and and he, he makes the important distinction between brands which try and do things that everyone else is trying to do. The example he gives is uh, like the military. You know, if the military broadcasts its, um, uh, its course of action to the world, well, then the, the enemy, if you will, right, like they're going to know where they are and they're going to show up and it's going to be a bloodbath. The best way to operate in the market is similar to the military. You don't want to broadcast what you're doing. You want to do something unconventional. You want to take the long road around and, and you know, have the element of surprise. Unpredictability and is, is, is a strategy, right? Can you figure out a way to do things that the rest of your competitors aren't doing? Or, some, or as well as doing something that will surprise and delight your customers. Yeah, you read the uh, you read the thing. That's it. Yeah, no surprise and delight is absolutely uh, a big part of that. Um, so and this is um, maybe I'm opening a can of worms here, but let's see what happens. Um, while I understand that social media marketing and and search advertising and display ads are really really important to getting a message out to the right people. I also recognize that one of the things that makes them so popular is that they are measurable in most cases. And people like to be reinforced. They like to have their decisions reinforced by data. Um, the problem with that is that uh, data can basically say whatever you want it to. You can switch the numbers and tell a different story about the data. It's, it's not that difficult to do. Um, you know, if I were to give you uh, an entire synopsis, of, of, you know, Harry Potter from year one through, through year seven. I could do it. I could give you a structural uh, uh, look at every event in the book. Um, and that's fine. That's good. But it lacks the emotional context that J.K. Rowling brings to, to the actual story, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so we can say, uh, uh, here's a great example. I was speaking with a, uh, a data agency um, that, that works explicitly in this field, and they were saying, you know, well, we found out once we, once we ran the numbers that people in this particular city and this particular state were, were ordering uh, uh, our, our product or their, our client's product uh, at, at rates that were much higher than anywhere else in the nation. And so we advocated that our client build a brick-and-mortar store in that city because the demand is so high there. Right. And I said, well, no, that's not what you know. I don't think that's a good way to, to advise uh, a client to build a brick and mortar. You don't, all you know, all you know is that you have had more orders from that city than anywhere else, right? 
That's all you know. Everything else that you layer on top of that is story. Um, is the story folks want to shop a brick and mortar with all kinds of, of, uh, of, of your product on the store shelves? Or is it this city particularly likes online ordering because of its location? You don't know. And so the data can be misleading and it requires context. And we, we either build it ourselves or we go out and we find out what that context actually is. <clears throat> Over-reliance on the data is very problematic. And that's what I think a lot of these digital marketing strategies force us to do. So, which reinforces the, the mantra of uh, what matters is why. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, you're doing Simon Sinek, right? That's, it's the, the start with why mentality. So when you all started. <laughs> yes, when, when they were three and not just me. Three. What were some challenges that you guys faced initially? I, I know you touched on having different visions of directions to go in. Yeah. How did you all manage to, to actually reconcile that from an execution standpoint mm -hmm. um, to get the ship going, to get everyone rowing in the same direction? Yeah. So, I mean, honestly, the, the, the early issues that the agency faced, and I think, I feel like Mero is really fortunate in that it was able to gain clarity and focus as quickly as it did. Because one of the problems that we had is that while each of the partners fundamentally believed in the power of, of, of brand design, um, our approaches to it were, were very different. So early on, I'll give you a great example. One of, one of the partners was an incredible technologist. I mean, just unfathomably brilliant. Could, like he's, I, I, I explain in him to, to people, I was like, he's, he's the kind of guy who makes data talk to each other. He can build um, these incredible backend infrastructures. Um, and so we said, okay, well, I'm me, Adam, I'm particularly good at, at design uh, and strategy. I'll take that side of the business. And then this other partner will take the, uh, the technology side of the business. And then our third partner is, is going to be sort of the, the executive operational type person to make sure that, you know, the, the wheels stay on the bus while we're going in a direction. Right. And so Mero launched as a brand design and technology agency because we saw that confluence of strategy, design, and technology uh, being really, really powerful. The problem was we couldn't get people outside of Mero to see those two things as being uh, integrated, mm -hmm. right? So what happened was people who knew uh, our, our chief technology officer thought Mero was a technology firm. People who knew me, the creative director, thought we were graphic design and brand strategy. And getting those two to overlap was really, really difficult. And so, so when I say, like, you know, we decided, hey, we've got we've to split this apart and when the, op when the right opportunities come together, we can work together, but it was creating a conflict in people's heads, right? right. When, we're, when we're talking about the brand lives in an in, in individual's mind, that's what was happening to Mero. So that ability to gain that focus was, was really critical. And then following that, you know, brand design is great, right? That's what Mero was. Um, that still lacks a kind of focus as well, right? It's what we do, but who do we do it for? And uh, so Mero made the pivot, and, and it's, it's worked out really, really well so far. And it's really important to be a brand design agency for startups 
and challenger brands. And now we've got a pipeline that we can actually work with, right? I'm, I'm out there on the daily talking to folks in these circles that have, you know, number two or number three brands that are, are startups, you know, that are, are right on the edge of getting ready to, to go big. I know where to be and I know what it takes to get from, you know, it's, it's, it was sort of the uh, crossing the chasm mentality, right? You know, to get from your early adopters into your early majority, right? So that's, that has been super helpful as well. And that lack of focus in the beginning is, I think that was something that made it difficult for Mero to create the kind of change that it wanted to. Yeah, it's, I mean, getting, uh, I'm using a metaphor, but getting a train from motionless, just moving, it takes, it burns a lot, kind of like a rocket. Yeah. Um, yeah, burns, momentum is what you're talking about, right? Inertia. Mm-hmm. It's gonna, a rocket's going to burn most of the fuel, and that's just getting out of the atmosphere. Once yeah. you get past that, that resistance and they get out into space, mm-hmm. at that point, it's, it's easier to coast because yeah. gravity and the momentum takes them. That's a great analogy, yeah. So, um, and I, I certainly feel that uh, in, the, in, the, in the first operating year of Miro, like it, there was a lot of thinking about what we were doing. And part of that was resistance to making, it's what Blair ends, uh, the guy who wrote um, uh, The Win Without Pitching Manifesto yes. and Pricing Creativity. Both of them, or uh, the women are pitching manifesto. It's a good book. Good. That is the the fifth book will commend the third author uh, to your <laughs> listeners. Um, it's a great book, but he calls this making the difficult decision, and it's hard. And and I pushed against it. And what's really interesting because in that first chapter of the book, right, he's talking about how if you do not make the difficult decision to specialize in one thing, then you, the rest of this book is irrelevant, right? And I thought, okay, that's cool. I get that. I, I'm not going to specialize. I'm not going to turn any business away at this point. Um, so I'm just going to continue what I'm doing and maybe have a really cool perspective. That was the old I, mentality. That's the, yeah, no, yes, the old mentality. I don't think that now, right? And it's, it, it is difficult to say no, especially early on. And, and there's, some, there's some reason to say uh yes to everything that walks in the door. You can't be as picky early as you can later on, right? Um, and so Mero still exercises that occasionally when there's capacity. Like if, if a client doesn't meet the, or a potential client doesn't meet the exact profile that Mero typically works with, but the capacity is there, well, we'll figure out a way to make it work. Um, but being able to have that focus is critical for developing a pipeline uh, of clients. And also, uh, once, once you do that and, and you become a bit of an expert in working with those types of clients, you're more effective, you're more valuable. Um, you can do better work for those people than you could if you just served everyone. Does that make sense? Right. Being a generalist, you end up spreading yourself in the, the jack of all trades. Master, master of, of none. none. Yeah. And so by specializing, you do become, and it also will build, help you build top of mind accessibility yeah. with people because we're always branding ourselves to people. Absolutely. Um, so being known for something and having taken up so much mental real estate mm-hmm. with people because you've sent the same message maybe 50 different ways, but it's the same message yeah. being said. Yeah. And when they think of something, you're automatic, they're, they're automatically associating that. Thing mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. product or service to you, 
Right. Yeah, that's great. Right. That's and that's how you get to be sort of a, a category or or a brand leader, uh, if you will. Or household name. Or household name. Yeah. Like it, it. You want to be when someone says candle, you want the immediate word to be what? What brand do you think of when I say candle? Oh, really? Okay. Well, that didn't go the way I thought it would. <laughs> I assumed Yankee, right? Okay, like, right, right. Right, you want to be Yankee Candle. If right. I say say hamburger, you, you know, what's the... McDonald's. Right, exactly. Uh, tacos. Taco Bell. Shoes. Nike. Hotel. Oh, that one's harder, isn't it? Hi. Right. Do you think... That's interesting. Do you, do you think that the reason that you have a pause on something like hotel is that hotels are not really well differentiated from one to the next, or there's not one that sort of holiday in is what hit my head. Uh, but that may just be because I'm, I'm referencing an early two thousands ludicrous chingy song. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's height. Um, there's several different hotel chains that are, that are available that we can choose from double tree, yeah, but they're all commodities, right? They're all commodities. Right? Unless you've got rewards with one. Right. There isn't one, at least in my mind, that stands out because they've, they've differentiated themselves so much. And it's mm -hmm. like, this is crazy. I want to check it out because I had so much fun. Mm. Or, or, or I associated to it in such a way. Yeah. Maybe even as a luxury brand, like 12 hotels. I don't even know that brand. Um, uh, but, yeah, for me... There isn't one that really stands out. So you're right. It'd be kind of a hotel is just a hotel. I mean, it's it's different from like going to like a budget inn or something. Yeah, like that. And, and and I guess for me too, it's probably not a lifestyle thing. I mean, if you've got a road warrior, my my father-in-law uh, used to to fly twice a week. He he worked remotely and he would fly into Chicago and he had a hotel chain, right? And he went to that one every single time. And and that's that is where he lived when he didn't live at home. Um, so for him, right, the conversation is completely different, right? And that's talking about target market, if you will. Um, and so I want to spin back just a second. We were, we were talking about differentiating in terms of, of marketing or design firms and stuff like that. The market that, that Marrow is in, at least geographically, is, is Lexington. And it's, this particular market is super interesting because the, uh, and I'm going to lump a bunch of stuff together here, the design, advertising, branding, marketing, communication space is so fragmented. Um, we used to have uh, some larger agencies in Lexington that kind of sucked up a majority of the business. Um, they ended up going away. And now in Lexington, I mean, you've got, you know, one-person consultancies like, like mine. You've got, uh, you know, a 50-person agency down the road. You've got uh, another agency, another direction, maybe a smattering of like five to ten people places. And then just up bunch of small stuff, right? It takes a lot of confidence and optimism to, to look at this incredibly fragmented space and say, you know what? You know what Lexington needs? Another agency. And these things just keep on popping up everywhere, mm -hmm. right? I, I, I am very curious to see how this entire landscape is going to map out. Uh, uh, over the next few years, locally and also also nationally, because you know now what we've created is this this space where if we're all competing locally, and some of some of Mayor's clients are are local to Lexington, there are a lot that are outside uh, um, the, the city and outside the state as well. But what? 
How do you how do you compete if you don't specialize in that field? Basically, your your business becomes so relationship driven that it's who you know. It's all it's all trust based, um, and so your your market is really just the people that are nearest you that are familiar with the fact that you do something. Right. Are we going to have to get together at some point? Is there going to have to be like this great reckoning where if it's you know we either swim together or sink alone? I I don't know. I think it's going to be interesting to watch that space though because we've got places like Fiverr and Design Pickle and right. Upwork and and those are marketplaces for people who want that service. Yeah. And um, whenever I see something, I think who was it? Was it just, was it Fiverr that launched a automatic? Was it was it might might have been Fiverr that launched a logo creation tool? It's like an automated logo man. Creator. Fuck that shit. That's <laughs> awful. I got I got more beef with, beef with Fiverr as well. Um, uh, I was uh, oh here we go. Here's your fourth author, Seth Godin. Um, I, I read his blog occasionally and, um, one of his recent posts, he was talking about how Fiverr is getting ready to institute. And I, I think I understand this correctly. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I apologize. But the, they are getting ready to update their terms of service to include a penalty for, uh, uh, businesses, companies, agencies, whatever that hire the designer that they contacted through Fiverr full time. Right. So let's say I'm a business and I've got a marketing uh, thing that I need to get done. I go to Fiverr and I find a great graphic designer and they design me a great thing. Uh, and, and they do it a couple more times. I'm like, dang, like this, this gal is so good. I want to hire her. Like it would just make so much more sense if she just worked exclusively for my company. If the company hires this designer, they are subject to, and I shit you not, a $50,000 penalty to Fiverr because you took you took the designer out of their marketplace. They want to own that relationship. There has to be some kind of terms. I'm, I'm sure there. I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm oversimplifying it and, and, and that's fine, but I, I hate that. Like that's, that's when you start prioritizing the middleman and not the, the, the relationship, not the work, not the company, not the goals. I mean, it's just, I hate it. Well, I can understand if if a company, like let's say that I do um, run, in, run an online business, an online marketplace, and there's an agency that actually has their foot in that pool, mm. and they are trying to, and they are um, attempting to monopolize it through, I guess, essentially adding more value than one person could add. Mm-hmm. I could see how that could come into play. Because um, if that's the case, if what you're saying was, was just uh, point blank, yeah. then there would be a lot of companies that I've worked with personally mm-hmm. that would be affected by that. So so you're saying that it would be wrong if agencies were to take advantage of the marketplace to do sort of like job searches, suck all the high talent out right. of Fiverr, exactly. and then leave the companies that don't have agencies high and dry. Exactly. Well, I, let me just say this. If you're an agency owner right now and you're using Fiverr to find talent, please stop. Don't do that. That re- that reinforces it is a race to the bottom. It's not it good because basically what ends up happening is uh, uh, agencies start looking for um, you know the cheapest designer, right? That's how you that's how you gain uh, notoriety and success in, in a lot of these marketplaces. It's not by being better than everybody else and charging rates that value the work that you do and the contribution you provide to a business. Agreed. It values. Uh, how little will you charge for as much time as I need? Um, 
And I, I don't sell hours at Marrow, at least not very frequently, right? Um, because it's, I, I don't think anybody really wants my time, right? It's a really weird way to, uh, to charge clients for the work that you create for them. Because here's the thing, the better I get at what I do, the, the less time it generally takes me to get that work done, right? And so you may say, oh, but Adam, then just increase your rates a little bit. Well, to what end, right? Like, here, here's the thing. Um, the other side of this coin is that creativity is, by nature, inefficient. Let's say I sell you a bucket of 80 hours because I predict that I'm going to be able to execute on, on your project in 80 hours. Um, and I sell you uh, 80 hours at $100 an hour, and it's an $8,000 project, whatever. 70 hours in, I realize, oh shit, like I'm in the shower. I have this incredible insight because that's what happens in an incubation period, right? And creativity. You've got all this information, it's sat in your head, and then you're taking a shower, and suddenly the light bulb goes off, and you realize that you've been going in the wrong fucking direction oh, well, you only have 10 hours left. Because the client didn't buy your insight, your creativity, your ability to help them reach a goal. They bought your time. So now you've got 10 hours, and you, as the designer, have a choice to make at this point. Do you eat it? Do you go to the client and say, hey, I know I told you this would take 80 hours, but I just wasted 70 of them, and I'd like to go in a different direction. You know, fat fucking chance. That's not going to go over very well. Um, but typically, and this is what I used to do when I sold hours uh, uh, in other practices, you just eat it, right? That's, that's the best way to do it. Um, so when you're, when you're charging by the hour, and, and this is how Upwork works, right? It's how Fiverr works. Oh, wait, you know what? That might be an important distinction. Was it Upwork or Fiverr that did the, was it Fiverr that did the $50,000? Yeah. Okay. Just want to make sure I'm not pissing off all of your, your, big, your big business listeners. I certainly don't want to be on the record saying something that's wholly inaccurate. I've usually briefed them on uh, those conversations of outsourcing to these uh, farms. Yeah, it is. And it is a farm, isn't it? And it's, it, I don't know. I feel like it's absolutely a race to the bottom. And, and creativity is, is inefficient. It's difficult to commodify it uh, or commoditize it. Um, yeah, that's, that's what those marketplaces are intended to do. Um, and the natural consequence of that is that people are going to Agency, not agencies, but but companies will will find talent, and they want to keep them on full time. I mean, you basically set up an opportunity for for creative people to be on a pedestal and 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 get business and get work. Um, that's a natural consequence, right? And and instead of facilitating that and in a natural way, they framed it as a penalty. I think it's going to drive. I think it's going to drive folks away. Yeah, it'll it will definitely have an effect on I guess, or at least bring up certain questions and maybe red flags and making making them a little more cautious about how they approach doing business. Yeah, in the future, absolutely. Um, so if you were starting off today, mm-hmm. I wouldn't even say today because we had a very interesting time period with uh, the health, yes, the health awareness of our culture yeah, and world. We are, we are time stamping this. I don't have my watch on me. What is the, what is the date that we're recording this? What is the date? Well, I will say this. We okay. went from basically zero to 100 over the course of this week in terms of coronavirus in the United States. 
where it was Monday, well, we're all going to get it eventually to we're going to shut down the entire country by Friday. It's an incredible week for sure. So, so your question, your, your question is, if I were doing things differently today, uh, how, would, how would I do them differently? Is that the question? Yeah. Um, I, I don't know that I would do it any differently, right? I mean, if I had all the answers I've got right now, mm-hmm. um, then, then I, I, I guess I would start the way that I am at present. Um, but all of those, those answers, those insights have, have been earned through the process of time and, and making mistakes and not doing things as, um, as maybe as efficiently as it would be if I could just hand down all the answers, you know, to, to Adam two years ago. That's a difficult, that's a difficult question to answer for me. Um, so I don't know that I would do it any differently, honestly, um, because I don't know that I could have. Makes sense. I had to. You, you have to go through the struggle. I think a little bit. Um, it's the refinement. Yeah, it's an ongoing thing. Like, I, have I made mistakes? Yes, but mistakes are the the learning opportunities that are are afforded to you. Um, so I, it, it is what it is. From your experience, and even though you maybe have made mistakes throughout your career, which is absolutely normal, we can both agree on that. Tell me about a client that touched your heart and tell me about a client that changed your perspective on how you approach being a creative director. This is such a weird question. Like, <laughs> tell, me, tell me about the time that you were just emotionally raptured by, by a business engagement. Um, before I answer that, where did this question come from? Like, why ask this question? Do you ask this question to, to every guest? I don't have a Asked it to every guest. I just thought it would be an interesting question, and I've I've had an experience. Okay, that's why. And I would okay, say, I would imagine that other people have had experiences where they were either engaging with a client or there might yeah. have been a breakthrough. Okay, and that might have changed. It's like, wow, I'm actually having an impact, a direct impact on people's lives. It's not just transactional. Yeah, yeah. No, I I don't think any when you're when you're doing brand design, right? Like you are you are dealing with identity. Um, at no point should it really ever be transactional. Can it ever be transactional and also be effective? Um, it is literally a business built on the idea that you are going to transform the identity of a thing, right? Um, I do have an answer for you, though. Um, uh, I worked with a public school district. Um, they initially reached out uh, with the, um, the need to redesign the logo for the school district. And that is, a, that is a very common starting point for, for a lot of clients. Once, once I got in there though, I realized that uh, you know, creating a new logo for the school district is not gonna change what it is that they're trying to change because they had a lot of uh, fragmentation within the district. Specifically, they had sort of an east, they had an east side and a west side. Um, and their thought was, if we can get a common visual identity for the entire district, maybe we can erase this boundary between the east side of the district and the west side of the district. And, um, I mean, as you and I know, right, logos don't do that. <laughs> That's not how they work. <laughs> it doesn't happen like that. Your um, brand is not your logo. Your brand is not your logo. Um, and so what we ended up doing, we, we did an engagement where uh, – we wouldn't just redesign the logo for the district. 
we were actually going to embark on a, uh, a process that would redesign the logo for every single school in the district, pre-K up through high school and all the specialty schools in between. In order to do that though, right, it wasn't just as easy as saying, give me your colors, give me your mascots, and we'll, we'll draw you some things that look similar so you have consistency. Consistency is important, but we're talking brand design, right, not just logo design. So I went into each individual school uh, uh, with the, the team of, of designers and, and account managers I was working with, and we toured every single school in the district over the course of about two weeks. And we interviewed teachers, uh, administrative staff, support staff, um, tons of people that were, you know, the big stakeholders in this district. And um, what was really incredible about that is they initially thought that the, the division between the east and the west side uh, was, was socioeconomic. That was, that was the, the idea. You know, if we could just create something so that you know, the, the folks who uh, have, have, are, are, have less uh, feel like they're in concert with the people who have more, this will work. That doesn't, that's not how, again, you, you don't bridge socioeconomic divides with logos either, right? <laughs> and, and, and to that end, I don't think that you actually bridge them with, with logos for individual schools either. Here's what we found that was really, really interesting, though. Uh, several, several decades uh, back, there was only one district. There wasn't an east and a west. There was basically one high school, one, one middle school, I think one middle school. Uh, and then the, all, all of these elementary schools kind of fed into one path. Well, the district started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And they, that's when they realized, well, we need to have two, right? So you had uh, uh, the original high school. And what's crazy when you walk in, it's now uh, uh, the west side high school of the district. Um, when you walk into that building, there are uh, uh, composites. Did you, were you ever in a fraternity or a sorority? No. Obviously not a sorority. Um, but you know like those great big composites where you see like all the fraternity members or sorority members. Right. It's like a giant yearbook page hung on a wall, essentially. Right. Well, they used to do these in this high school, which, you know, it's, it's a very old, old high school. Um, and... You walk in and you can see the history dating decades back, right? The story of who uh, uh, these people were was in that high school. Now, the East High School was a lot newer, right? You walk in that building, there is no story. There's no identity. So what actually happened here is that when the split was made, it wasn't equitable, the West Side retained the identity and the story of the original school district, right? So if I go uh, to the West Side or live on the West Side, it's be, you know I get to see maybe my mom and dad or, or my grandparents on the wall. Like, I'm, I belong to this. My identity is deeply rooted in this space. East, East, the East Side didn't get to take any of that with them. At least they, they, didn't, they didn't do a very good job of it. And so that divide uh, was intense, and people were emotionally invested in that, right? Because when people take them, their whole selves to work, and you, you kind of have to do that in a school building, because you're dealing with, with students that, you know, for them, you might be, and I literally heard this, you might be the only smiling face they see that day, right? There, there, uh, there are teachers that make it a point to make sure that particular students know they are loved, uh, uh, because they don't have it at home, 
Right. That's a big responsibility. I don't have to do that at Merrill. Like I care about my clients, but I don't have to worry about my client coming in and needing to know that they are a human being and they have value. That's a lot of responsibility. That's a lot of responsibility. Now brand that, make a logo for that, right? It's crazy. So throughout this entire process and, and through talking to people, um, we, we identified that, you know, the word family came up in every single interview. I mean, we've got pages and pages and pages of interviews and notes. Um, but family was the only consistent word that came up in every single building we realized, okay, right? Like, so we're talking about a family, not just a school district, but a family. Um, and you know what? There are problems in families. I've got problems in my family. I'm sure you've got problems in your family. It doesn't mean everything is hunky-dory and we're all on the same page moving in the same direction at the same time. But it does mean that the care, attention, and love that we bring to uh, our, our school families is palpable. It's real. And so we ended up uh, designing a sort of family crest identity system um, that could uh, uh, tell a sto- tell the story about each individual school. So they were they were uh, similar in terms of uh, shape, but the contents of of each mark was was different dependent on the school. And we made sure we used consistent uh, colors uh, uh, and a consistent design language across all of them, so that they could see their story being told about themselves, but also understand the story being told about their neighbors on the other side. And it all kind of coalesced into one huge identity system. Um, so when you walk in or when you experience it, you have like this history uh, represented in a, this heraldry. Yeah. Form. Yeah. And that's a big deal because a lot of these students are super transient too, right? Like they may, they, they've got different family members on different, different sides and maybe they're living with, you know, their, their aunt uh, one year and then they're living with their grandmother the next year and she's on a different side, right? And, and, you know, for students to be able to feel like they've not left a home, but have just, I guess, joined another team, like that's important, right? Because now they can still see some consistency from where they were and carry that story over into where they are now. Um, and it doesn't have to feel like starting over every single time you make a move. Um, so that was a, that was a massive project and a really, um, you know, it's, it was a gratifying project as well to have contributed to, to an actual culture, right? That's, that's thousands of people that now have an idea for, for who they are. And they're going to build on that. They're going to they're fill in some of those gaps that, you know, uh, Mero couldn't provide uh, answers for. But at least now they've got a starting point. And that's tremendously helpful, I think. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like that making that like making that kind of an impact where it's more than just yourself that can be very very eye opening and reassuring yeah this is so what you're touching on is super interesting right it's like this this spectrum of wanting to be an individual and wanting to belong to connect yourself to something bigger than yourself um and I don't know that anyone actually does it particularly gracefully. I kind of feel like I rubber band back and forth between the two poles of that spectrum all the time. Like there is, there is absolutely a, a deeply embedded part of me that wants to stand out and be unique and, and, and be the, uh, the change maker, the, the, the last picture on the think different ad, <laughs> right? Um, and yet there's another part of me that absolutely wants to 
support and be a part of something bigger than myself to have that that community. Um, and it's it's difficult navigating that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, there's. Um, I think it's just humans in general. You're right. We we oscillate between expansion and contraction. Just mm. like breathing. Yeah, exactly. And so it's. A, I think it's healthy to have moments of where you're out in the world and watching and observing and interacting, and then moments where you uh, recluse yourself and just kind of contemplate and get quiet. Mm-hmm. And it's healthy. Yeah, I think I think you're probably right. We probably veer to one side or the other um, uh, as a sort of a reference point, mm-hmm. I'm sure. But I, I absolutely agree with you. Like, you can be more than just one thing, um, but having the self-awareness to to be able to to be able to navigate that spectrum is really important, and that's true for for individuals as it is for for businesses as well. Yeah, it's definitely a part of that, that cycle of life. What's your best tip for someone who's might be struggling to take their idea forward? Maybe they're uncertain about the direction they want to go in. Maybe they're overthinking. But if you could give them some sort of insight. Tell me who I'm talking to here. Is it just someone with an idea? Or is it like, are we talking about a, a designer? Or are we talking about... It could be a designer. It could be someone with an idea. It's just someone who may be overthinking and not acting and mm. not doing what it is that they feel would be the right thing to do um, in their circumstance. I mean, I think the answer that a lot of people give to this question, at least this is the one I've observed most recently, is, you know, don't make it perfect, just do. Um, and so in that regard, I think I might be a terrible person to ask this question of because I, I, I do succumb to overthinking, right? I wake up every day and I get to the office and I read for an hour, right? I could spend that time, I guess, designing cool shit for Instagram, right? Maybe I should be doing that, um, but I don't. Uh, I, end up, I end up reading and I end up thinking. And a lot of that stuff, you know, everything I read gives me the opportunity to, to uh, employ that information in service of, of my clients. Um, but I absolutely am an overthinker. I, I absolutely am a perfectionist. Um, and, and maybe that's a flaw. I don't know. It's kind of remarkable that I'm sitting in a conference room in a building uh, as well appointed as this one in downtown Lexington talking to you right now. Uh, and I own it. Not the building. I, I've got the lease on it, right? Uh, I'm not that successful yet. Yet. But, uh, it, you know, I think something that, that a lot of people don't give enough credit to is luck. There's a lot of luck. There is a lot to be said for being in the right place at the right time. There's a, uh, I went to Center College um, when I was in, in undergrad. And um, they, they put a statue up about a decade ago. They love Abraham Lincoln over at Center. And, I, and they put a, a statue of Abraham Lincoln walking into uh, Crown's library, a Crown's Hall and his Grace Dowry Library. And I, I can't remember the inscription word for word on the base of, of this statue, but it's a, it's, I think it's a quote from Abraham Lincoln. And he, he's saying, you know, uh, I'm going to read and take note and be observant so that when the time comes, I'll be ready. And really, that's, that's what it is uh, for me, is constantly preparing so that when that, when that opportunity strikes, when, I'm, when I just happen to be in the right place at the right time, I, I don't accidentally drop the ball. I've, I've got it. Um, so that may be some counterintuitive advice 
is that maybe it's okay to prepare, right? Uh, and it's okay to overthink so that when the right opportunity comes along, you can take advantage of it. Right. Yeah, it's it's better to be prepared and not have an opportunity than have the opportunity and not be prepared. Right. But that does also mean you've got to keep showing up. Absolutely. Right? Um, one of the, Here's another mistake that I, I made early on in my career. I only showed up to events uh, and conferences and things that uh, pertain to my particular industry. So I would go to ad club uh, mixers and events and meetings and, and go to design-centric type things. I only surrounded myself by, by design and, and branding stuff. Well, that's cool, but those are my colleagues. Those are not my potential clients, right? You know, you've got to show up in the places uh, consistently, right? So that you can become familiar in those groups because familiarity breeds trust, right? Um, so no matter how trustworthy I am, if someone doesn't perceive me to be trustworthy because they haven't seen my face enough, it doesn't matter, right? The brand is not what you say it is, it's what they say it is. And if they don't know you exist, then they've got nothing to say about you. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Adam, it has been an absolute pleasure. Oh, good. I did it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this has been great. I've learned so much just from this interaction. I mean, when we first just talked, it was like two hours. Yeah, yeah. This is, I think we've gone on like, uh, this, is, this is hour four of our three-part conversation, uh, and you've only captured a little piece of it. <laughs> so tell, tell the, uh, the, anyone, for anyone who's listening, how can we find you? Uh, okay, so maybe the uh, the best way uh, to find me is via our website, um, which is madebymarrow.com. Um, it is always going to be in, in a state of the cobbler's children have no shoes. Um, it's a fine representation of marrow, uh, but you know how, how we talked about how the, the, the brand has evolved? Right. The, the website is lagging. <laughs> It's a great website, but it's not great enough, right? Um, but that's a good place to get started, right? Uh, you can also contact me on LinkedIn. I'm happy to accept, you know, connection requests from people who aren't trying to sell me uh, anything. Um, I don't, I don't exercise that that opportunity myself either. I don't try and sell through LinkedIn, so I hate when people try and sell me on LinkedIn. Um, so you can find me there. Um, and then, of course, the, my email address is just simply adam at madebymarrow.com. And uh, I'm, I'm pretty good about responding to emails. So hopefully you'll get one back. If you like this episode of the podcast, please help me in sharing the great news. If there's anyone that you think that would enjoy this episode or the other content provided, share it, like it leave a comment so other people can be engaged as well. And as always, remember, the light at the end of the tunnel may be you.